The following podcast contains explicit language. He has a lot of great ideas. He's not a stupid man. He's worth $9 billion. I feel like our country is going down the drain. He's actually a very intelligent man who cares deeply about America. There is no question that this is the person who will go to Washington, D.C. and be able to absolutely turn the place around. Hello, and welcome to TrumpCast, the show about the golf cheat Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So there's certain consequences and some benefits to being a major party presidential nominee. You get Secret Service protection. You're eligible to receive public funding for your campaign if you agree to abide by spending limits. Another benefit is classified intelligence briefings. Holy crap, wait a minute. The government is going to trust Donald Trump with secrets? That's right. After the Republican convention, Donald Trump will have access to highly classified information, even though he's never even had to apply for a routine security clearance. This is a guy with a basic problem distinguishing reality from fiction, who spreads insane conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination, and who blabs to the press and public about every rumor he hears. How on earth can the government share sensitive information with someone who's so untrustworthy? Why not just email it straight to Julian Assange? On today's show, I talk to John McLaughlin, the former deputy director of the CIA, who's actually conducted these briefings for previous nominees from both parties. I'll be back with him in a minute to hear about how the intelligence community is going to handle this one. But first, I don't know if you saw the interview that Melania Trump gave to the journalist Julia Yaffe for GQ magazine. Melania was upset that the article portrayed her as a little, well, dull, superficial. She sent us this response. I was sad to read Julia Yaffe's profile of me in GQ magazine. I feared that I may have come across as materialistic and uninteresting. Apart from my jewelry design, almost none of my wide interests were addressed. We spoke on the phone for a long time and I feel she was very selective about the details she chose to share. Here is a list of some facts about me that were left out of the piece. I speak many languages. In addition to Slovenian and English, Italian is one of my favorites. In my spare time, I write Italian novels under the name Elena Ferrante. I gave J.J. Abrams the idea for the show Lost, but told him he would have to figure out the ending himself. Miss Yoffe tells her readers that I only share my political views with the Donald, but she fails to mention that this is in the context of his formal debate prep, where I have been serving as the stand-in for Governor John Miss Yoffe spends a lot of time talking about my secret half-brother, but makes no mention of the secret half-elf wizard I play in my weekly Dungeons and Dragons game. While it is true that I enjoy caviar, I have also been known to punch a bitch who takes that last slice of Papa John's. <laughs> I can continue? That was a sketch from our friends at Second City. 
It was written by Steve Waltine and performed by Ava Lubell. My guest today is John McLaughlin. He's a former CIA official. He was the former acting director of the CIA and a former deputy director of the CIA. He's now at the Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies. John, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks very much. So you have uh, given a, a security briefing to presidential candidates in the past. What happens in those briefings? Well, each one is a separate and unique situation. And the way it works is determined primarily through a discussion between the White House and the candidate or the candidate's advisors. So some candidates want to be briefed once, and that's it for a short period of time. Others like periodic updates, and they work that out with the White House. And in terms of what happens, uh, a briefer shows up on about four occasions. It's been me, and then it's been others, of course, since I left government. And the briefer has a series of issues that he or she is going to take the candidate through, typically the ones that are in the headlines. Today, you can imagine it might be Syria, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China. In other words, the things that a candidate who aspires to be president probably ought to know about in terms of what's available privately as well as publicly. So you show up with a list of those things and points you want to make. And then it really depends on the candidate. Sometimes the candidate will sit and listen. Sometimes the candidate will interrupt frequently and really take the conversation where uh, he or she wants to go. Uh, that more frequently is the case in my experience. And sometimes they will have an advisor with them. That has to be worked out with the White House as well. Uh, that's the basic drill. I think I read you brief George W. Bush before he was president and also John Kerry before he was not president. Is that right? Correct. <laughs> Correct. Those two and uh, and also John Edwards. Occasionally, a vice presidential candidate or the team will, will request that both presidential and vice presidential candidates be briefed. That's the only occasion that I was personally involved in that I remember that being the case when it was Kerry and Edwards. So how classified is the information you get into in those briefings? Is it comparable to the level of briefing a president gets when in office, or is it something short of that? Well, it's very close. And again, I'm sure that this, in my experience, this kind of varies administration to administration in terms of how much freedom the briefer has to go deep. You know, the briefer is going to have to be somewhat improvisational. Uh, you have some guidelines, but inevitably the candidate takes you to the things that are of interest to that person. Typically, the rule I always had in my mind uh, was the candidate can be briefed on just about everything except things that are not widely shared within the national security team itself in the government. So take as an example the operation that was mounted in 2011 to take down bin Laden. If there had been a candidate briefing, say, two or three months before that operation, it almost certainly would not have been discussed because there were many people in senior levels of government who didn't know about it. It was that tightly held. But beyond those things, I always felt, and I had freedom from the administration, to go where I thought the candidate needed to go to understand an issue. Now, does the presidential candidate need or get a security clearance before receiving classified information? Not to my knowledge. Conceivably, something went on behind the scenes that I wasn't aware of. But to my knowledge, the assumption is that if they've gotten that far, 
there's no point in clearing them because they're cleared by election, essentially, as are most uh, congressmen and senators. So you may see what I'm driving at, John, but what if you were in a position as a briefer of briefing someone who wouldn't pass a security clearance, who you might feel is just fundamentally not trustworthy? Well, you'd have to, again, I can't stress the degree to which in the end, the briefer has to use personal judgment because of the fluid, dynamic nature of these discussions. Who am I to judge sitting there that this person would or would not pass a clearance? You may have concerns about someone based on their public persona. You know, people have asked me, for example, what about Trump? He seems to blurt things out. He seems himself very improvisational. I I think what you'd have to do would be two things. Probably the White House, and I don't know that he should be treated separately on this. If you stop and think about it, any presidential candidate is in the competition of their lives. They will never be in a more competitive, higher stakes competition. So the temptation to somehow take what you're giving them and bend it to political purposes has to be there in every case. At some level, you have to count on them as patriotic Americans to do the right thing. In other words, to absorb whatever you're telling them. Frankly, a lot of it is not amenable to political purposes. This is a very dispassionate, clinical, totally non-political briefing. In the case of someone about whom you had some small reservation or large reservation, you know, I guess there'd be two things that would go on. I assume the White House, in dealing with their handler, if you will, would stress that they're about to get some sensitive briefings and that it's their obligation to maintain security with them and that they would have the same obligations as any other American if they violated the uh, trust being given to them through the possession of classified information. It's illegal to leak classified information. But let me give you a hypothetical. I mean, it sounds like if there was information about a threat of a pending terrorist attack, That would be the kind of thing, absent information about sources and so on, that could be in the briefing. Boy, it's easy for me to imagine Trump using that in a political context and hard for me to imagine him keeping it confidential. Well, try and imagine it, (laughs) I guess, would be my my advice to you. I think the more interesting issue with, with Mr. Trump would be just how he absorbs discordant information, because in an intelligence briefing, you're almost certain to hear things that are at odds with your preconceptions, and you've got to deal with that. You know, politics exists in a very different world than intelligence. In politics, people take whatever facts they possess or what they judge to be facts, and they stack them up and rearrange them and come out with the conclusion that favors their point of view. And then the other side takes the very same set of facts and stacks them up and rearranges them to come out with their point of view. I think we call that spin, don't we? <laughs> yes. There's no spin in intelligence. Yes. There can't be. So by definition, anyone who's doing the intelligence right is going to just lay it out there, as I said, passionately, clinically. Sometimes you're going to hear something that doesn't accord with what you thought was the case or perhaps even what you were saying publicly is the case. So you're watching the the candidate or the president-elect to see how they absorb information, how they respond to information that maybe conflicts with what they thought, and figuring out, I guess, for the future, potentially, how to get through to them, how to communicate with them. Yeah, and they're telling you. I mean, it's a conversation. In my experience, it's always been a conversation. Let's take a hypothetical. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Trump has called for backing away from 
I, you know, I have to go and weigh his words to know exactly what he said, but the impression left was that his view was in the case of uh, Korea and Japan, we could back away from them as allies or be less involved as allies if they didn't pay more for their defense. Well, an intelligence briefer at that point might might just work into the briefing the fact that Japan has been paying uh, $2 billion for stationing our troops uh, on their territory under a four-year agreement that uh, comes up, I think, for renewal in 2016. And so the question would be, is that enough? I don't know with whether Mr. Trump knows that, uh, that they've been paying $2 billion. I can see circumstances in which, and this is true of any candidate, but it might be a little more true in Mr. Trump's case, uh, where what you're saying rubs up against, in an unpleasant way, stuff that uh, that he believes or has said. Mr. Trump has also suggested policies that violate American law or international law, such as torture. Would you be in a position as a briefer, whether he asked about it or not, to say, um, Mr. Trump, we heard you say that, but you can't do that as president. Well, y- y- what you would do, I mean, you you know, again, you, you wouldn't go in with an agenda of things that you're going to tell him that uh, along the lines of, dear Mr. Candidate, here are all the things you've said that are wrong. You wouldn't start that way. You would just start with your briefing. Now, if that issue arose, probably in the context of uh, a question from him about how how many captures is the government doing and how are you treating the captives? You would explain uh, that uh, in terms of treating detainees these days, the U.S. government is bound by the Army Field Manual and by executive order, and I believe laws now, that uh, determine the techniques you can use. And then it would be up to him to say, well, what about this? And you would just in a very matter-of-fact way say, well, that's not permitted anymore under current law. And when I get in, we're going to change all that. You know, I've had candidates say things like that to me. When I become president, I won't name candidates, but I've had candidates say to me, well, when I become president, we're going to change that. You don't debate them at that point. You just that's That's not your job. John, you suggested that the president has a fair amount of discretion about what might be included in such a briefing. I realize it would be unprecedented, but could the president or the national security advisor say, in this case, we're not going to give a classified briefing to a, to the nominee of a major party? Uh, that would be unprecedented. And I uh, technically, technically, that could happen because ultimately the president in the executive branch uh, owns this information and is responsible for its classification and its declassification. So technically, that could happen. I don't think it's hard for me to imagine that happening, frankly. And in terms of what is probable, who do you think would be the likely person or or agency representative to do this briefing now that you're retired? Well, in my day, it used to almost always be led by a CIA officer. I had taken on a number of occasions uh, someone from other agencies. I took uh, once to... um, carry briefings, the the deputy director of the FBI, because I felt that uh, discussion of domestic, potential for domestic terrorist attacks was important. So uh, these days, I think the decision on who does the briefing is not in the CIA director's hands. It's in the hands of the director of national intelligence, who would be Jim Clapper. He would decide whether the briefing was to be done by, again, this has varied over the years. It could be by himself, More likely, it would be by someone he deputizes to do it, one of his deputies, or by some team of officers from 
within the intelligence community. Basically, you want someone who's going to be knowledgeable and able to handle themselves in that situation. John McLaughlin is the former deputy director and acting director of the CIA. Uh, John, thanks for talking to me. I learned a lot from the conversation today. Sure, you bet. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. The show is produced by Henry Malofsky and Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Special thanks to Ava Lubell, our voice of Mrs. Trump. And special thanks to Second City and Steve Waltine, who wrote today's sketch. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I invented Twizzlers, Pull, and Peel. The candy. <laughs>